You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. So, uh, may I have some questions and, and uh, discussion of, of this, if you have any, any such in your mind? Yes? Would you uh, comment on the Green Knight episode uh, the exchange of hacks on, on the Well, uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a 4th century, 14th century romance, which survives in the, in the, in the uh, Middle English uh, version. This is the story of, of the test of the hero. Um, the story, very briefly, is of a moment in Arthur's court where a great giant green knight with an axe over his shoulder arrives, and the knight uh, challenges people to a head, a beheading game. Um, you uh, cut my head off uh, now. I offer my head to the axe. Here's the axe. And in one year, you come to such and such a place, and I'll cut your head off, okay? And uh, <laughs> will the court uh, submit to this? Uh, does, anybody, does anybody have the nerve to do this? Well, it's Gawain, Arthur's uh, nephew, who is the model knight, actually, of the Arthurian tradition, who, uh, who says, I'll do it. And he gets up, and he takes the axe and cuts off the, the head of the giant, and to everyone's uh, considerable shock, the giant picks his head off and goes out with it like a football under his arm. And he says, uh, one year from today, boy. And uh, <laughs> so the time comes. And uh, it's time for going to go do the job. And you have this expedition, this noble knight to this deed. And he comes to the castle of the uh, green knight. And the Green Knight's beautiful wife is there. Uh, now uh, is the, the temptation and the test. Here's the test of your integrity. Um, uh, the uh, Green Knight is going to go out for a day of hunting. And he says, we'll exchange what we get when I come back. I'll give you my booty, and you give me whatever you've got. So out goes the Green Knight, and the Green Knight's wife uh, uh, invites Gawain to love. And I think uh, she gives him one little peck on the cheek. And um, when the knight comes back, uh, he gives uh, what he has found, and he gets a peck on the cheek. And it's three days. And what happened the third day, I can't remember right now. The Green Garden. Uh, Hmm? The green garden. Oh, that's right. Uh, the, uh, the, the queen gives uh, Gawain his, her garter. And um, when uh, the time comes to, for the exchange, Gawain withholds the garter. So he has, he has flooped out just, just once here. So now comes the time for his beheading. He goes out and stretches out his neck, and the knight says, a little longer, a little more. Right. And uh, then he brings down the axe, and zing, and he just scratches the neck slightly. Uh, that is the amount of in, the lack of integrity that uh, Gawain has shown here. Uh, if he had uh, given the garter over, uh, nothing would have happened at all. And so the Knights of the Garter were founded in celebration of this. <laughs> uh, well, what this is, is a test. It's the test of integrity. Uh, and it's associated with a myth of the uh, the year god, you know, the god who lives for a year and then gives the, the new year. We see it every year, the old year going out, the young year coming in, and the new man. And this is the test of the birth of the new man, the spiritual man who lives not for lust, 
but for the power of the spirit, which is integrity. It's a variant of that story. In a work of Heinrich Zimmer's, or a, a collection of things of Heinrich Zimmer's that I published called The King and the Corpse, that story is, uh, is uh, elucidated, and I think uh, extremely eloquently and very, very well. That, by the way, is, is a charmer of a book, uh, Heinrich Zimmer, The King and the Corpse. It's a collection of, uh, of legends. Uh, one um, Arabian Nights sort of legend, a series of uh, European stories, four Arthurian romances, and the last half of it are four episodes from the Kalika Purana, or the, uh, which is one of the Puranas devoted to the goddess Kali as the, uh, the goddess, the prime goddess of the universe. These Arthurian romances, like uh, many of the fairy tales of the Grimm brothers, are a marvelous uh, symbolic uh, tales. And uh, working them over and reading them is probably the best exercise anyone could undertake to become acquainted with the symbology of the European tradition. They're marvelous. When did the legends of the Barthes get started? Now you asked for a story. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the uh, <laughs> Romans conquered uh, Britain uh, around 50 BC, you know, the, the Caesars uh, crossing the Rubicon 49, all this kind of thing. Uh, then when the Germanic tribes began pushing in to uh, Rome, uh, they withdrew from England to tighten their lines 449 AD. So they had been in England uh, about 500 years. And uh, the, the, the area of Rome in, uh, in Britain uh, reached up to the Scottish Wall there, and uh, to Wales, and to Cornwall. So Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, the Isle of Man, and Ireland remained outside of the Roman domain. And this is the, the Celtic matrix. This is the great matrix of, of Celtic lore. When the Romans pulled out, the Anglo-Saxons pushed in. Uh, the, the, uh, England was left without armor. And uh, a series of battles took place there, in which there seems to have uh, functioned a, uh, a, what is called a rex bellorum, a, a dux bellorum, a leader in war, whose name was Arthur. And uh, with his death, that was about the end of the show, and the Anglo-Saxons conquered. The Britons were put down by the Anglo-Saxons, the Germanic people from Denmark. Um, those in Cornwall emigrated to Brittany, so that Brittany in northern uh, France is part of this complex now. And the Britons had the wish that Arthur should return and they gain back their land. So you have this whole idea of the return of Arthur and the recovery of the land. This is way back in the 6th and 7th centuries. There is a period of what must have been oral tradition. Then, uh, in the uh, uh, 12th century, the monks had a, had a, uh, a habit of writing histories of the world. Uh, this monk would write the history of the world and bring it up to his day, this one, this, and so forth. And there was a monk named Geoffrey of Monmouth, living in Monmouth, who wrote a history of the kings of Britain. That is to say, those kings who were supposed to have ruled in Britain before the coming of the Anglo-Saxons. The first of them being Brut, named B-R-U-T, after which Britain is named. He had come, <coughs> according to the legend, from Troy, when Troy fell. Just as Aeneas left Troy and founded Rome, 
So Brutleaf's Troy comes all the way up and founds the, the British line of kings. This work of uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth had all the legends of the, of the, the British uh, line. Among them, um, uh, the story King Lear, which Shakespeare takes over. You will recognize when you read this many, many stories that we, that we know. This appeared in the year 1136, this work. And it was immediately followed by a French version by a, a writer named Wass, who wrote the thing in, uh, in uh, Nor Norman French. And he added the uh, theme of the round table of the grail so that the warriors wouldn't fight. And then this was translated into Middle English by a man named Lyman around 1200. Uh, now, this was a, a work which celebrated a uh, empire that never really came into being, the empire of Henry II, uh, which included Britain, France, great parts of France, you see. And uh, Arthur was supposed to have been the forerunner of that. And this, just as Aeneas was the uh, champion of the Roman Imperium, so Arthur of, of this world here. Arthur now, meanwhile, has become understood as a king, not a Rex Bellarm at all. We have uh, chronicles of this Rex, uh, uh, Dux rather, uh, who was, uh, oh, he fought 12 battles, 12 battles, he's got a zodiac, and he killed hundreds of people single-handed and all that. He was a, a person who had become mythologized immediately. <clears throat> now this is brought to France because Norman French is the language of, of Britain at this time as a result of the Norman Conquest and so on. And we have this wonderful woman, Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, who was the wife the first of, of Louis of France, and then she left him after going on the crusade with him and uh, marries Henry II. She was the wife of two kings. She was the mother of King John and uh, King, uh, uh, what's his name, the Lionhearted. Uh, her uh, daughter, uh, um, Marie de Champagne, uh, was the principal patroness of Arthurian romance, uh, poets, and so forth. Eleanor, she was born... Um, 1122 and died in uh, 1209 and is the queen of this whole grandiose period. This is the period, by the way, in which almost all the cathedrals were built in France, 1150 to 1250s. So it's the grand period of Europe. Well, now the Anglo-Saxons conquered the Celts and the Norman French conquered the Anglo-Saxons. And just as in college, the junior class always favors the freshman class against the sophomores. So the, the Norman French favored the Celtic poets. And the Celtic bards became very, very popular in the Norman courts, whether in England or in, down in the south in uh, Poitiers, where, uh, Marie, uh, where Eleanor lived, uh, had lived. Welsh and Cornish bards transformed the old Celtic hero stories into medieval stories. We can locate every single one of the Arthurian knights in, uh, in the uh, Irish, Irish stories, Tristan, uh, Parsifal, the whole lot. And so we have the stories of the hero knight uh, as, simply as transformations of the old Celtic romances. And then it begins. But the French already had their favorite king, namely Charlemagne, and they didn't need Arthur. They became more interested in the, de in the acts of the knights, so that in the French romances, uh, the author is simply the center around which the tales of the knights appear. Now, the principal poet of, Eleanor, of uh, Marie de Champagne was Crétin of Troy, and uh, his were the earliest romances of which we have now examples. 
and uh, his list is practically the list of the Arthurian romances. He wrote a Tristan, which has been lost, and then Eleanor wanted an anti-Tristan. Bad thing about Tristan and Isolde was that they fell in love so violently that they left the court and had their affair out in the woods. But we want this love in the courts. And the Lancelot becomes, the, and Guinevere, the representatives of this, they drank their cup, you might say, like a martini, kind of slowly. And, uh, and uh, so they didn't go wild over this thing. And Arthur, who knew what was going on, recognized that love was superior to marriage, and so is, is the example of, the, of the, the noble king, whereas Mark was turned into kind of cuckold in the stories. The first work of, uh, of uh, Creighton was the Tristan. Then the ladies wanted a story, an anti-Tristan, and he wrote the Erec, which is the story of uh, married love, constancy. And then he wrote uh, a foul story, I think, Cliges, where the woman waits until her husband has died, and they bring about his death before she acquiesces in love. And that's a crazy way to think. This is regarded as more virtuous than, than adultery. Uh, then he wrote the Lancelot, which is the great story. And then what I regard as the great story, Yvain, which is a marvelous romance. And finally, the Percival, which is the grail romance of, of, uh, of uh, Creighton. But Creighton, the Percival, he wrote about 90, 1190 AD, and the first one about 1165. So those are the dates of the creation. Uh, then echoing the French, troubadour and uh, courtly poets, were the Germans. Uh, there was uh, Walter von the Vogelweider, who was the great minnesänger. And the difference between the German minnesängers and the French uh, 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 the troubadours was this. The troubadours were always in love with and celebrating noble ladies. The minnesängers celebrate women. Uh, it was Walter uh, who said, the word woman is a nobler one than lady. And uh, his girls are just delicious. These, these, these are wonderful. Uh, and then come the, the two great poets, Gottfried of Strasbourg, who rendered the great uh, Tristan, which, Vol uh, which Wagner took over, and Wolfram, who rendered the Parsifal, which I'm here. Now, his, Wolfram's Parsifal is the work of a man who knew what the symbolism was all about. Cretien didn't. Cretien was a marvelous storyteller. As one German critic says, he could shake verses from his sleeve like a magician. Uh, they would just come pouring out. But uh, the, the, the depth sense of it all uh, was unknown. And then comes the Cistercian group, the churchly uh, version of the Grail romances. And then, this is all heretical, you understand, about 1232, the Inquisition is brought down, and that's the end of the story. I, I would say with that date, the beginning of the Inquisition, the church cuts itself off from the development of the spirit in Europe. Uh, the uh, scholastic philosophy was in full career at this time, and in 1277, the church issued what are known as the Condemnations of 1277, condemning something like 195 propositions, which are not to be discussed. And with that, you have the end of the scholastic Next century, the papacy falls in, falls apart. There are two popes and then three, and before you know it, Luther comes along and the whole thing is bust. Uh, Luther makes the absurd mistake, though, of going back to the Bible. The Renaissance uh, clergy were beginning to be quite sophisticated in this. There was one cardinal had his portrait painted holding Ovid's Metamorphoses instead of the Bible on his lap. And why not? Because <coughs> the same stories are there. You know, they just have different names for the heroes. 
Well, so much for the Arthurian romance. It, it, uh, it, was, it had a brief flowering, but a decisive flowering. And um, now in English, the tradition comes to us through Mallory, who translated the French Quest del Saint Graal of the, of the Cistercians. The Germans get it principally from Wolfram. You see, so that's the difference between Wagner. But what Wagner has done has been to reinterpret Wolfram in terms of the quest. I mean, Wolfram is a kind of virgin. I mean, Parsifal is a kind of virgin. And uh, the, the, it's all a masculine group, sanctimonious, boom, boom, boom. Whereas in the, uh, in the uh, medieval romances, the people who are carrying the grail are women. And the thing about them is that they, are, they have integrity. They're supposed to be virgins, and they are virgins. Uh, and uh, the castle is not a, a cathedral. It's a castle. It's secular. So um, this is the whole line. It's the protest of Europe, the soul of Europe, against the soul of the church. That was brought in saying, this is an institution, and this institution is the, your only salvation from this sin which you've inherited. This is the matter of individual readiness. Anybody can go to heaven if he makes a good confession and is baptized. But not anybody can get to the grail castle. This might sound like a really a, a difficult question for us to answer. But do you think if, uh, if Buddha and Christ and Allah and uh, see Zen Master uh, were all together in the same room, they'd be of one mind? It would be a lot of, it would be a regular Pragya Paramita conversation. Uh, no, it would be, uh, you know, different ways of saying the same thing. It would have to be. In fact, in the Gnostic tradition, there is an imitation of the Prakyaparamita texts. This, for instance, the Pishti Sophia, uh, those texts where, the Bud where, uh, the, where Christ sits on the Mount of Olives uh, asking questions of the uh, uh, disciples, and they asking questions of him. That's a complete reproduction of Buddha on the vulture peak talking with the, uh, the bodhisattvas. What do you make of uh, the kind of insurance policy that, say, Buddha set up for his disciples that, that his word should not be corrupted or his, his mind should be continued uh, perfectly, whereas there was an immediate corruption of Christ's word? Yeah, but there's immediate corruption of the Buddha also because there was a terrific quarrel at those councils, and so you have the split into the Mahayana and the Hinayana. It splits into innumerable sects, but no sect had the emperor behind it to club people down who had other points of view. And so Buddhism has proliferated uh, a great many varieties of inflections. And what uh, the different sects uh, represent are... Uh, Emphasis on the different uh, sutras, the different Buddhist interpretations, uh, all of the same doctrine. You don't have an essential quarrel among the Buddhist sects. Now, I have a friend, I, I've already mentioned him, uh, who uh, was a Catholic and before that was a, a, a Hindu um, a monk, and he really was a valid Hindu monk uh, for, for something like 25 or 30 years. And uh, as a Catholic, he was sent to that great meeting of the Catholic uh, uh, monastics in Bangkok, which took place a couple of years ago, where Merton uh, died. Uh, Thomas Merton, uh, he was electrocuted by a bad fixture in the hotel or everything. Um, this friend of mine tells me that the Catholic monks, these are not priests, these are monks, people who practice meditation. <laughs> 
and that's their life. They had no problem at all talking with the Buddhist monks. There was mutual understanding immediately. Uh, and it's my view that the mystics inevitably are saying the same thing, and it's only the lay clergy who have never practiced, that don't know what these words are all about, who quarrel about the words. The orthodoxies are in conflict. The mystical roots are the same root, and you can match them. You read Meister Eckhart, who's the exact contemporary of Dante in the 13th century there. You can translate that into the Upanishads. When he says it is of more worth to God that Christ should be born in the virgin soul than that Jesus should have been born in uh, Bethlehem, he's, he's talking the, the, uh, the Hindu way. And when he says that any flea as it is in God is of more virtue and glory than uh, the archangels in themselves, he again is saying this, and any flea can be in God. And he says, love unites, and the love is God, and one who is love is God. He says, I am God. Um, well, heavens, he was summoned to Rome, and forcing the church that he died before he got there, because that would not have been a very good blot on the scutcheon of the Holy See. What's the main message of the uh, the main message of the king of the corpse uh, is the is this one that the corpse is the dead Adam, you know, and the king is the spiritual one. And uh, there's a story from uh, the uh, Sanskrit, the twenty-two tales of the of the, the of the spirit in the corpse, uh, which is just the key story that comes along. Well, that story briefly, I see the transcript. That story <laughs> briefly is uh, of a king who, uh, at, when he was uh, in his judgment hall, day after day, week after week, year after year, was approached by a yogi who would hand him a fruit. And the king would simply hand the fruit to his treasure, and the treasure would throw it over the wall. And this went on and on and on. And uh, one fine day, when the fruit was handed, a little monkey, uh, a pet monkey from the women's harem, happened to come in and was playing with the king and grabbed the fruit and opened up in it was a priceless gem. The king says, go look to see what's behind that wall. And uh, there was this pile of jewels. So the king was in deep debt to the yogi. So he said to the yogi, well, what do you want? Well, the yogi says, I'm practicing magic and I need a body. I need a corpse. I need a noble one. And I'm going to be out there at midnight tonight in the uh, burning ground where corpses are burned. And this is a place full of spirits and ghouls and jackals and all that kind of thing at night. Spooky, spooky place. You come out there to me and, uh, and we'll uh, do our next uh, transaction. Uh, so the king comes, the noble king. And uh, there's the magician drawing circles. The magician says, there was a man hanged at the other end of the ground here. He's hanging from the tree. Will you go get him and bring him to me? I need a corpse. Uh, the king had thought it was, he was going to be the corpse. Now they uh, he said, you bring me the corpse down the end of the field. So the king goes down the end of the field, and there's this corpse hanging. And he cuts it down with his sword. And when the corpse hits the ground, he thinks he hears a voice. He picks up the corpse, puts it on his shoulder, and starts across. And the corpse says, it's a curious job you've undertaken, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to hear a little story to entertain you while you go on? <laughs> and, uh, 
uh, then uh, the, and, uh, the king uh, has to say, okay. And the cop says, now I'll tell you this conundrum. And if you think you know the answer and don't tell me what it is, I'll blow your head off. So he gives him a conundrum, you know, what's what? And the king, who had judges, 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 uh, says um, what he thinks is the answer. Corpse is no longer on his shoulder. It's back there on the tree. He has to go back, cut the thing down, pick it up. Second story. Third story. Four, 22 of these things. This is the what Jung calls the transitus, the opus of integrating this and that. Um, now, the story that uh, uh, is in the King of the Corpse of these 22 <clears throat> is of uh, two young men. This is a story, by the way, that Thomas Mann took over in the story of the transposed heads, and he took it from Zimmer. Uh, in fact, you'll see in the English uh, version of the uh, transposed heads uh, the, the dedication to Zimmer in the in the uh, uh, This came out just at the time Zimmer came over here to the, to the United States, and Zimmer's brother-in-law was uh, uh, one of the writers on the Newsweek, and he got hold of this and appeared in Newsweek with a picture of Zimmer and so forth. And they asked him, what do you think of the way Thomas Mann worked the story up? Oh, he said, it was good. He brought a bit of Wagner in. This story is by a ninth century writing in Soma David. It, it, it's marvelous, brilliant kind of writing. The sort of writing you get in, in, in Ovid playing with these tales. Well, just briefly, these two boys, are uh, they see a young girl bathing. And one of the boys falls in love with her. This is a sort of intellectual boy, and the other one is a very physical chap. And uh, with this way, that way, the marriage takes place, and uh, this boy marries that girl. She no sooner uh, is married than she really begins to fall in love with his friend over here, with a good, great body. And so it's a rather difficult triangle. The, the, these two very close friends and, and the girl. Well, they're out in a, uh, on a drive one day, and they come to a little temple of the, of the goddess. Kali. She is the one to whom human sacrifices are made. And uh, the driver, knowing the situation, gets out to go in the temple. And he goes in and he finds a sword there and he cuts his own head off in sacrifice. And so the two are outside, seated in the wagon, and uh, their friend does come back. Well, the husband said, I must go and see what happened. He goes in and he sees what happens and he recognizes what happens. He picks up the sword, cuts off his own head. So now the girl's sitting there. What's happening to these fellows? She goes in, she sees the two of them, and the voice of the goddess says, put the heads back on them, do you see? And they'll be all right. In her nervousness, is it nervousness? Asks, <laughs> she puts the wrong head on the wrong body. So uh, she'll get the, the bright head and the great body. She wants that. So then they get up, and whose wife is she? <laughs> That's the question the corpse asks the king, you see. <laughs> well, Thomas Bond picks the story up there. Thomas Bond does a, a really very amusing thing with it. Uh, they, they go to a yogi to ask uh, the, the answer to the question. And he's a Jain yogi. They say he's stark naked, as they say in Sanskrit, to Digambra, clothed in space. Uh, this, this means he's, he's, uh, he's cast off the garments of uh, mortality. And in this absolutely truthful way, 
he says, uh, the wife is the wife of the hand she took. That's the body she doesn't want. You see, that's the, the one she had before. And uh, she's so uncomfortable about that, and she doesn't seem to, to want it. The yogi says, wait a minute. He puts an apron on, and he says, the marriage is to the head. So now she gets the, the, the body she wanted, you see, the, the good physical husky body, and the intellectual head. Whereas the other one now, he goes out into the forest to practice austerities, and uh, he has, of course, to chop wood and so forth. So his body is building up. But this one's a thinker, and his body begins to go fat. So she begins to think the other way. Oh. And, uh, it's, a, it's a really very amusing story. But uh, stories of this kind that are put to the king. Here you sit in judgment. And uh, do you know? Well, finally, when he bumps up against a story, and I've forgotten what it was, it was infinitely complicated, he just has to say, I don't know the answer. The whole world breaks into glory, and, uh, and the magician is eliminated, and the, the, the spell is broken of this false notion that a king can judge, and that he is judging, and that he's acting in terms, again, of the authority which he really does not have. That's the same story as the Grail, you might say. Oh, there's a basic idea. The one who leaves a life that is not the authentic life that is his creates the wasteland. And insofar as we live such lives, we are of the wasteland. But the wasteland can be broken into flower by the integrity of your life. And there's no moment when you can't find what that integrity is and begin to, to live it out. Then the new man has been born. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network. It is produced by Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer, John Booker. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Charles Mallet. All music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.